Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And today we're going to discuss episode 17 of season four of Supergirl, which is titled All About Eve, which is taken from a movie of the same name. Yeah, so they chose this title very well because the movie features a girl named Eve who is a creepy fangirl of the main character who's a theater actress approaching kind of like the end of her career. So she's flattered at first that this girl is so interested in her and helping her and giving her attention until you realize that Eve is out to ruin her life and destroy all her relationships with the people that she cares about, which is not at all what Eve Tessmacher has done (laughs) in the course of the past two seasons. And if you recall, back in season three, when she joined Lena's team, she seemed very much like kind of a fan. So this development is quite fitting. It is. Although it was also interesting to see that she was like a weirdo, creepy fan of Lex. Mm. So I'm curious to see if we'll have a little bit of a twist on this story. Eve Tessmacher is the real villain of season four. That would be amazing, honestly. (laughs) I wouldn't totally put it past the show. I wouldn't either. That could be awesome. (laughs) And speaking of Eve, she wasn't featured a lot in terms of screen time in this episode, but she was the driving force behind a lot of the characters' actions and the motivations for why they did a lot of the things that they did. And we also managed to gain some new insight about her in maybe a way we weren't expecting. Like I at first thought we'd get maybe some fill in on all of the deceptions that she's done over the course of the show thus far. Mm -hmm. But instead, we got to meet her cousin who we discovered something really fun about. Yes, her cousin is played by Jill Morrison, who's also in the Mean Girls movie, which is neat because we had another actor on the show in the Stand and Deliver episode who was also in Mean Girls. Jonathan Bennett played the heckler who had a sort of development during the course of the episode in which she became more friendly toward aliens thanks to Supergirl. He played Aaron Samuels in Mean Girls. So that's a nice kind of couple connections we have there. But Jill Morrison plays the girl who doesn't even go here. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually extra funny. I was slightly disappointed that they didn't sneak in any Mean Girls references during Stand and Deliver, but they managed to do one in this episode. And it was very entertaining because the girl who doesn't even go here in Mean Girls is the one who does her really emotional, dramatic speech about wishing that she could bake a cake made out of rainbows and smiles, and then we can all eat it and be happy. And you have Bitsy being this really overly emotional, effusive person who (laughs) offers them cake. Yeah. So well played, Supergirl. And Kara's reaction to that was really funny, too, because she was like, I'd never (laughs) turn down cake with like the same amount of enthusiasm. (laughs) And both of them were lying. So that made it even better. (laughs) Wow. All the deception in these Supergirl episodes is really getting to me. She also says at the end of her emotional speech in Mean Girls, I just have a lot of feelings, which is fitting because the theme of this episode is handling emotions. Yeah. So most of the characters have a lot of feelings and we get to see how they deal with that in this episode or don't in maybe one or two cases <laughs> yes and speaking of we have james and kelly who her arrival is pretty timely for this episode because she is a psychologist that specializes in trauma and in terms of having lots of feelings my immediate feeling upon finding that out was oh thank god <laughs> yes <laughs> she is the hero the super fam needs she is 
She's the hero that James needs in this episode. Yeah. So it was really nice to get a little bit of a deeper look at their sibling dynamic. And I'm excited to see where it goes from here because kind of like with early seasons of Kara and Alex, there's definitely some tension in there. And a lot of it centers around what Kelly seems to think are James's poor coping skills in the face of trauma, especially since we find out that he has been a target of Lex Luthor eight times now, Mm. which is yike. Yes. And we found out two episodes ago that Lex actually tortured James. So that's a lot of baggage to deal with. Yeah. And especially once Kara comes bearing the unfortunate news that the shooting was actually Lex's responsibility Mm. and James was being targeted for that again, because for a while he was trying to kind of like combat some of the fear he was experiencing by telling himself like it's okay because the person who did it is dead and they're not going to come back for me. Yeah, James is trying to rationalize the situation, which is a coping skill that one might use and can often be a very positive tool. But as is often the case with coping mechanisms, it can go too far or be misused or be relied upon in the wrong way. And in this case, we see James trying to use rationalization as a tool for denial and suppressing the feelings that he already does have. Mm. But that's kind of where his emotional journey in this episode levels up a little bit because he can't excuse away any of the symptoms of trauma that he's experiencing anymore. Yeah, we saw quite a few symptoms of trauma-related disorders in James in this episode. Yeah, and I appreciate the nuance that they had Kelly use appropriately with describing it as acute stress disorder versus PTSD because those are essentially the same. The difference is in the onset and how quickly the symptoms resolve. So the word acute tends to refer to something that like happened really recently. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, if you have a lot of the diagnostic criteria for a trauma-related problem, it's classified as acute stress disorder if they appear really soon after the event and they resolve themselves within a few weeks. And then if they don't, that's when the diagnosis transfers over into full-blown like post-traumatic stress disorder because your symptoms are lasting for longer than a month and usually they reach the point of kind of impairing your ability to function either socially, professionally, or both. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first symptoms that we see, and this was done really nicely from a production level, the sound effects, the visual effects were really great, Mm -hmm. as well as the just framing of it and the acting. We see James exhibiting these symptoms of hyperarousal and or hypervigilance, which is essentially when your central nervous system is kind of on overdrive because there's a lot of adrenaline because you're constantly on the lookout for threats. And also you react really quickly and really sharply to sensory stimuli like sounds or flashes of things that you might see that remind you of the trauma that you experienced. And so we see James hear an object falling somewhere else in the room and he immediately kind of panics a little bit at the sound. Yeah, Kelly sees him flinch pretty intensely. And it's interesting because it seems to serve sort of a double function in this episode of Mm. being a symptom of a trauma-related disorder and also being a hint that James may have powers, super hearing. Mm -hmm. And, And the camera work was interesting as well because it was familiar in terms of maybe something we would see in the flashbacks in season one with Kara and her dealing with her super hearing. Mm -hmm. But it was also really reminiscent of in season three when Kara 
had a panic attack in the elevator. So the effects and the visuals sort of seem to combine into this interesting moment. Yeah, that was very intriguing. There was some confusion about like maybe it's one thing and not the other thing in terms of being a symptom versus being a hint that he has powers. But like I said, I do think it might be some sort of combination of both. You had pointed out that Lex Luthor immediately had super strength. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of like, where are hints of that with James? Like what's happening there? Does it represent differently in people? Is it maybe something that you have to call up to use as opposed to with Kara, who always has super strength? And if that's the case, it would be interesting because James having these symptoms may have called up the super hearing Mm. and and triggered it. To borrow a term. Ha, yeah. But also kind of like how Kara's powers sometimes get a little bit beyond her control when she's emotional. Mm, Yes. Well, the other thing I was wondering related to why the powers have manifested differently in Lex and also Bitsy, Eve's cousin. Mm. Bitsy lets it slip to us as the audience that Eve came and brought her medicine. And we also found out that's what she did to Lex. But we don't know if it's the same version Mm. of the cure that Lena finished to give James because we don't know when Eve took it. Yeah, that is a good question. So that could also potentially be affecting it. But in terms of kind of other symptoms of trauma-related disorders that we see in James, in his second scene where he's interacting with his sister, Kelly articulates them for us as the audience to make it really clear. Mm -hmm. And so she mentions, for example, avoidance. She points out the fact that James runs a media company and Lex Luthor is one of the biggest stories running and he's got every TV in the office off because he doesn't want to have to see Lex's face or think about it or deal with all of the emotional baggage that will come with that because it's a trigger of all of the trauma that he's gone through. And another feature of both acute stress disorder and PTSD that can sometimes be hard to distinguish from other mood disorders other than by understanding that it's triggered by a specific traumatic event is symptoms related to having a negative mood. So you see really intense periods of irritability, especially when James has been reminded of the trauma that he went through. So you see that a lot in his interactions with his sister in this episode. Yeah, that's one of the things that Kelly specifically points out in James's behavior. She also mentions that these are, you know, just the symptoms that she can see. And we as an audience also have to leave some things up to interpretation because they're not inside his head. But another possible symptom in James is dissociation, which is something that can range from like total detachment from physical space and your like emotional life to a more mild, zoned out, like foggy feeling. And with James, he specifically tells Kelly that he's going to CACO to help out with the Alien Amnesty Act situation and how they're trying to repeal it and to like how no one's talking about it. But then when we see him at CACO, he's just sitting at his desk. TVs are off, as we mentioned, and his iPad is off and he's sitting there holding a pen and looks pretty zoned out. And so some other cognitive symptoms that go along with trauma-related disorders include an inability to focus because you're distracted by thinking about the traumatic event and mm-hmm. and also kind of intrusive thoughts that will come up. Mm-hmm. So those two things can also contribute to an experience of dissociation or look sort of similar from the outside, depending, because you can tell that the person's clearly not like thinking about what's right in front of them, but you're not entirely 
entirely sure if they're like literally reliving the experience in their brain or if they're trying to just shut off and not think about anything. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll get some more insight into the inner workings of James's mind, which should be exciting. Maybe he'll see a therapist. (laughs) Maybe. And I appreciate that his sister made the point of coming to him with a list of referrals Mm. as is ethically responsible of her. Yeah. (laughs) We've been excited about Kelly coming on the show because she's a psychologist. We've had this information for a bit before the character arrived. But we're like, yay, a psychologist, but she can't actually treat any of the people on the show because they're all like Like really close. friends and family. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Or well, (laughs) they might not be her friends yet, but they will be. Yes. And it would also be weird to like treat your brother's friend. (laughs) Yeah. That's ethically not a thing you should really do. Mm -hmm. So the fact that she is coming with referrals is very exciting. (laughs) Yes. And it's actually kind of like what Eliza did for Nia earlier in the season. That's nice. And then so one of the other really major things that happens to people who are victims of trauma and who experience trauma-related disorder side effects is that they'll have flashbacks to the moment of the event. And it's one of the things that Kelly specifically mentions that she's worried will happen to James if he Mm. keeps trying to kind of not talk about it and pretend everything is fine because those moments can be incredibly debilitating. And if you're in a situation that you can't get out of and that happens, you're extremely vulnerable to all kinds of horrible things happening to you, either physically Mm. or mentally. And we actually see later on in the episode when he decides to go to the White House to take photos at the alien amnesty repeal and kind of confront Lockwood, that when all the chaos is going down with Red Daughter and you've got like the security people trying to pull guns and uselessly shoot at her, he kind of does seem to go into a state like that where he's banging his head against the wall to like try to clear his mind and he can't really move any further Mm -hmm. and certainly wasn't the best time yeah this is one of the hints for me that what james was experiencing wasn't just like super hearing because we know this whole situation was really loud but also in Kara, we don't see that kind of physical reaction where she can't like move because of it and the emotional display that we see with james was very clearly about his trauma and this event at the White House with James is the thing that ultimately leads him to go to Kelly for help toward the end of the episode. And we got some insight into not only James's personal backstory, but context for his relationship with Kelly in a way that sort of ties into the things we already do know about James, specifically how he doesn't like being controlled and sort of prevented from being good. Obviously, in season two, he had that conflict with Kara because she didn't want him to be the guardian. Mm. And then in this season, we've had quite a few points in the story for him which other people are trying to control him and seeing how he reacts to that. Well, and it's funny because I mentioned to you, I think when we were making notes, that the tone of voice that James was using in his argument with his sister, I was like, I've only ever heard him talk to Kara like that. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, (laughs) it fits perfectly. It does, actually. Yeah. But in terms of issues with James feeling controlled, we had, he got upset with Lena for Mm. kind of going behind his back and resolving his conflict over being guardian. Which now that you say that, their pairing is so interesting because we know that Lena as a person really feels the need to control things. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> because of her, like, various traumas and backstory. And then that conflict was her trying to control certain outcomes with James. And James is not like that because of how he is as a person. So that is an interesting dynamic. True. Yeah. And then in terms of James chafing at other people trying to kind of maybe control his decisions or the way he lives his life, we had the whole big issue with Ben Lockwood using him as kind of like Children of Liberty propaganda, which James really didn't care for. Yeah. In a couple instances, we saw Lockwood try to back James into a corner regarding Guardian when James had gone to give a speech and Lockwood put him in a position where it would be really awkward if he didn't run out and be Guardian. And then obviously the situation with the monument that was a symbol of alien immigration, and they tried to force James to blow it up on camera and profess his loyalty to the Children of Liberty, or else they would kill someone. So we've seen a few beats across this season and in previous seasons that have to do with James and feeling controlled. And specifically with Kelly, in her introductory episode, we saw her tell Alex when things got tough at home that he would run off and get into all kinds of trouble in order to, you know, be a force for good in the similar way that we see with adult James. And now that Kelly is trying to help James address the trauma that he's been through, he accuses her of only coming around when he's in the hospital. He says, the only times you've come to visit me are when I was in the hospital because I was weak and you could tell me what to do, right? So this relationship seems to heavily feature that element. And you had brought up the question of whether or not Kelly or James was the older sibling. Because mm, we just don't know. <laughs> but that dynamic could be interesting either way. Yeah. Actually. Because like Kelly kind of coming in in that way would make sense as like an older sibling thing. And it would be very similar to kind of the way Alex will step in for Kara sometimes. But it would be also equally interesting if Kelly was actually the younger sibling because that would make James find it even more annoying. <laughs> yeah, true. Although he does eventually go to her for help, which is nice to see. Yeah, that was actually really nice to see, especially because we haven't gotten much emotional context for James except in a few isolated moments. They've mm -hmm. really been trying to do more of that from like late season three into this season. So that was really nice on that front. But also to the fact that the show is using its platform to allow men and particularly black men to display these kind of vulnerable emotions and ask for help was really striking because it wasn't just James who did that in this episode. We also had Jean yeah. really struggling with some big emotional issues and reaching out to family as well and asking for help and accepting it. And that's usually some of the most difficult parts are asking and accepting help when you need it. So that was really, really nice to see. Mm -hmm. And gave the opportunity for some really nice performances. Yes, absolutely. On both Makad and David Harewood's parts. Yeah. And we got to see Carl Lumbly come back. We did. Space Grandpa can visit as a mental consciousness anytime. <laughs> yeah, so Jean summons Marin to kind of help him with his identity crisis because he just killed Manchester Black and Jean had taken a vow of peace <laughs> and nonviolence. And it's interesting in terms of handling emotions, the theme of this episode, because Jean killed Manchester Black in response to Manchester basically trying to make him relive the death of his daughters and his wife at the hands of the White Martians. And it made Jean very angry and then he killed him in that moment. And we also see that Jean is still feeling very angry in this episode. Yeah, he sure is. Yeah, while Jean is 
meditating and asking Marin to help him and guide him, he hears a knock at the door and then he starts really yelling at them <laughs> for not reading the sign and gets up in sort of a fuss and goes over to the door and shouts in what ends up being his mental projection of Marin in his face. And it's like, oh, hi. <laughs> hi, Dad. <laughs> I was kind of struck by just how intensely angry Jean was when he got upset about the knocking on the door because it read to me a little bit almost like he also was experiencing kind of a flare up of some trauma related symptoms because of just how mm. quick to anger he was and how irritable he was over something that wasn't really that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Which is very much in contrast to how we've seen him all season mm -hmm. and isn't even quite on the level that we saw him get angry at normal things, you know, everyday things in season one when he was a bit more grouchy. Yeah. And it's also almost funny in a way that he's so angry because we find out then he's angry at the piece of his, his mind that he's looking for answers from in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Which it turns out was the point all along. Mm. <laughs> yes. Mind Marin <laughs> tells Jean that he was angry already and just pushing it down. So clearly Jean hasn't really been coping with his intense emotions throughout the season, really. No. And we talked about this a bunch and we've been noticing it popping up as the season's gone on. And so we'll probably talk about it in much more detail in the summer. Hmm. But Jean's journey this season feels very much in some ways like Kara's emotional journey last season yeah. in terms of making peace with his different identities. And it makes sense that he's reaching this almost kind of point of despair, A, because Manchester really provoked him into it and triggered all of these emotions. Mm -hmm. But also Jean had this kind of like glimmer of hope in season three that he could regain some of the stuff that he'd lost by having his father back in his life only to lose it all over again. And we haven't really seen him spend all that much time this season processing that loss of his father, other than when he gets justifiably furious at Manchester for desecrating his father's grave. Mm. But that's like a lot of unleashing of emotions <laughs> that maybe haven't been processed all at once. Yeah. And that's sort of the tactic that we see Marin use. Oh, provoking him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Jean is really kind of startled that Marin takes such a concrete presence. He, he's kind of like, I don't know, I was just expecting like a voice or like <laughs> yeah. to feel you in the room somehow, like, you know, having like that Lion King moment. <laughs> Remember who you are. <laughs> exactly. I, that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah, Jean is afraid that he will forget not only his personal identity, but his cultural identity. He tells Kara about this race of shapeshifters who entirely forgot who they were because they tried to blend in with a different society and appear as a different race in order to protect themselves. And so he voices how fearful he is of that. And this, of course, ties into how Jean is the very last son of Mars. He says, you know, if I lose myself, we not only lose Martian religion, we lose everything. So he has the weight of his world on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. A struggle that we also see in character like Kara. You pointed out to me how nicely this ties into Jean's storyline with Marin last season. Yeah. So Jean is talking about this fear of 
forgetting everything because he's the last and because of these stories that he knows about shapeshifters who change their shape so often and live so much as something other than they are that they kind of lose their grounding and their sense of self. But he also watched Marin go through that same process last season because he had this Martian illness and was actively losing his memories. And it also ties into the other thing that involved Jean and memory this season, where Alex asked him to take her memories away. Yeah. And that was also disturbingly fitting because of the relationship that she had with both Jean and Marin last season and Marin's comment about her kind of fitting in and having this like emotional kinship with the Martian culture. <laughs> so I'm like, that hurt me in a good way. <laughs> it's interesting because the space family of Jean, Alex, and Kara have all these like identity storylines. Yeah. Alex with trying to embrace her true self and now Jean and Kara with her. Cara Danvers, Cara Zarell, Supergirl identities. Well, and at the moment, all three of them are in their own ways dealing with this issue of trying to like compile all the pieces of who you are <laughs> because Alex is now missing a part of what grounds her sense of who she is. And Jean is having this big conflict over who he thinks he should be. Yeah. And Kara's always had this problem. So, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're a great family. <laughs> <laughs> they're quite the trio. But with Jean, like you said, he's trying to figure out who he should be. And he tells Marin, I'm trying to figure out who I'm supposed to be. And then Marin says, the easiest question in the world. And it made me think of how basically you can only be who you are, which is something that Jean on some level is trying to reject because he on some level knows who he is. Yeah, which... Mind Marin even kind of jokingly remarks upon because he's like, oh, it's the easiest question in the world, but apparently not for you <laughs> with this kind of playful humor. But the fact that Marin is kind of giving him all these cryptic like half answers or almost mocking him a little bit or telling him everything he did wrong. It keeps making him so angry that he finally acknowledges the truth that's been in there, that he's just been unwilling to say because it means letting go of another part of himself in a way. Yeah, so Jean realizes that he was trying to hold on to who he thought Marin wanted him to be. Not unlike his adopted children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, this is an interesting sort of recurring theme that we see in the series with, you know, trying to honor your parents' memory or trying to be who you think your parent wants you to be. Specifically with honoring a lost parent's memory, we also have seen the concept of like heritage tied into that with Kara and trying mm. to be who Alora wanted her to be and to keep Krypton alive and honor it. And we saw earlier this season, Nia, after she lost her mother, trying to trying to figure out what she would want for her, if she would want her to be Dreamer, uh, a superhero, and then also trying to connect to her heritage of being a Naltorian. And then obviously we have Jean here, who after Marin told him to live as Ranmir taught among the people, promote peace, tried to do that by like becoming Marin. <laughs> yeah. So he maybe took the message a little too literally. <laughs> yes. Mind Marin tells him, I never meant to make you feel like you had to change, Jean. I'm sorry. I failed to impart my unconditional love for you, which is interesting in relation to a character like Kara, who we've talked about multiple times. Mm. Alora heavily emphasized.
realized the responsibilities that Kara would have, and she really took that to heart. And we contrasted it earlier this season in the Jean podcast with Marin, who at the end of his little speech, his last words to Jean said, and be happy, my son. And we kind of praised him for trying to emphasize that. But I guess it's not the easiest thing to do because Jean still didn't quite get the message. No. And I really liked it because tonally, it was also very similar to the confrontation that Alex has with Eliza in the beginning of season one about Mm. kind of the weight of parental expectations and the way that they're interpreted versus maybe the way that they're meant. Mm -hmm. And Eliza actually says something very similar to what Mind Marin says here in saying, like, I never meant to make you feel bad. I just want you to be the person you are and I love you the way you are. So it felt like a nice full circle Mm -hmm. that each of them has kind of gotten to have that moment of acknowledgement in that way. It's funny because you talk about how Alex and Jean are similarly minded. It's really amazing sometimes when you (laughs) stop and think about it. Yeah. Yes. And (laughs) Eliza and Rin are sort of in the same category of parent. Like if we go back to the mom's podcast when we talked about how each of the parents have... Of the parenting styles. Yeah. Their sort of parenting objective of like, I want my child to make the world better in this way. Or like in Lillian's case, (laughs) um, I want the child to serve my goals, my personal like selfish goals or make me feel better. And then we have Eliza and Marin who clearly just want their child to be happy above all else. Conversely to someone like Alora who really seemed to value, you know, values <laughs> above all else. But for Jean, he eventually does get the point that Mind Marin tries to remind him as a projection of himself. <laughs> Obviously, Jean does know on some level how Marin would feel. And he lets go of the sacred symbols that Marin gave him and goes on kind of a pilgrimage to the desert of Ta'az. It kind of, in a way, is almost a little bit like Clark going on his pilgrimage to Argo. Ha! In a way. <laughs> and then Kara's all alone. <laughs> and poor Kara now is all by herself. Yes. It makes it a little bit better when you remember that Kara earlier in the episode said to Jean, you're always helping everyone around you. Right now, you just need to take care of yourself. And Jean does do that. So, Yep. And it was also such a perfect thing for Kara to say to Jean, because as you like to point out... <laughs> Kara tends to give advice relationally and connect it back to like things that she's learned herself or other personal experiences. Yes. And suggesting that Jean always helps everyone else and now maybe needs to focus on taking care of his own emotional health was advice that Kara got last season Mm -hmm. from both Alex and Alora. And it's extra funny because Alex has also been given that advice before. So again, (laughs) this little family circle has completed itself nicely. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about how Mind Marin tried to push Jean to realize the truth about himself by making him angry and eliciting an emotional response, which is something another parent on the show does in this episode. Only uh, maybe not quite so kindly. <laughs> yes. Lillian Luther. <laughs> yeah, Lillian Luther returned in this episode, which was exciting. We were waiting for her return as well as Marin's. Yeah, and we weren't expecting them to come back at the same time. So it was nice to see them kind of serve as foils for each other in this episode. Hmm. It's a curious combination. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It was also interesting in terms of 
the Luther dynamic. Mm-hmm. We obviously recently saw Lex interact with Lena, and now we're seeing Lillian come into the equation and how they all react to each other and relate to each other. And Lena in this episode is sort of recovering from her own sort of traumatic event. Yeah. So when we first see Lena in this episode, A, she's rescued by the DEO and then taken to the hospital where we see her kind of coping with what Lex has done in a very different way than what we mentioned with James, where James had all the TVs off and was trying to avoid thinking about Lex. Meanwhile, Lena's like staring at the TV in her hospital room with murder eyes. Yes. <laughs> and like trying to see how soon she can get back on her feet and be productive about trying to clean up this mess because she's worried about all the ramifications of it. And it's funny because we said earlier in the podcast about how it's almost odd in some ways that Lena and James dated Mm -hmm. because they're so different in some ways. But in this way of coping with difficult experiences, they are apparently quite alike because Lena's behavior here in feeling the need to go and kind of like be productive is a callback to what Kelly said about James in the previous episode and how he deals with trauma by feeling like he needs to keep moving and not linger on all the bad things that happened. Yeah. And so you see Lena, again, trying to kind of exert control over herself and the situation by doing this. And we know she's really great at uh, locking up her feelings in her little boxes, (laughs) which presumably she is doing in this episode as she's trying to kind of directly confront the people who have harmed her and who are the root of many of her fears and insecurities. But unfortunately, because she just went through this whole betrayal, kidnapping, drugging experience, she's not really mentally at her best to have Mm. this confrontation with Lillian, whose primary mode of hurting Lena is with mind games. And so Lillian ends up really making things worse. Yes. We talked about how Mind Marin did something similar in terms of trying to manipulate Jean. He sort of laid out all the little acts of violence that Jean had performed over the course of the season in order to protect people. And then obviously the very big act of violence in killing Manchester. So he really lays it on him in order to get him to lash out. And then we see with Lillian her try to also elicit an emotional response from Lena, but specifically in order to make her feel bad about herself as opposed to come to some positive realization. And it's interesting with Lillian because this is kind of, uh, it's weird to say, but a meaner side of her than we've seen. Which shouldn't seem possible and yet is. (laughs) Yes, which I attribute to how Lex is back in the picture. We talked about how he's the golden child and Lillian was initially very preoccupied with him and, and his achievements and how he's the superior child and then only sort of fell back upon Lena after he was out of the picture and was trying to make Lena think that she really loved her the whole time and, and try to rekindle that relationship. But now we see that Lex is here and it's back to probably how Lillian behaved before we saw her entrance in season two. You also had an interesting way of describing Lillian and her behavior. Yes. Since we were doing so much delving into psychological concepts with this episode, I was kind of amused by the fact that Lillian is like a human personification of negative or unwanted automatic thoughts, Mm -hmm. which mentally when these happen for a person, they're kind of like all your insecurities or like the things you're afraid of that you think about yourself that will sometimes intrude upon your rational brain. 
and debilitate you when you're trying to do something. Only she is physically there saying all these things out loud to Lena's face, which is not making Lena's internal self feel any better. Yes. It's interesting because in Lillian, it's a very classical, like, villain vibe. Like, she says, like, Lex outsmarted you. She's so pleased with it. Like, smug. (laughs) Yeah. And in a different context, it would be maybe kind of campy. But because of the information we have about Lillian, she reads as more of a classical, abusive personality. We also see Lillian, as she's obviously trying to make Lena emotional, say, do you have to be so emotional? It's disappointing. And the best part about that is... Lena's not actually being all that outwardly emotional. No, she's not. She's trying her best, all right? (laughs) Which, like, we're seeing here the source of why she has little boxes. And that, of course, ties into the theme of the episode being handling emotions and how to do it and how to not do it. Yes. And once Lillian recognizes that she's getting to Lena, she grows even more condescending and starts kind of remarking on, oh, Lex, hurt your poor heart. Boo-hoo. And that definitely gets to Lena (laughs) because she remarks back that she has a heart. And um, in fact, if we're speaking literally as well as figuratively, she has quite a few of them. (laughs) She's like, I'm winning this battle. I have way more hearts than you do. (laughs) And uh, speaking of collecting hearts, a very similar exchange happened back in the Crisis on Earth X crossover with Overgirl and Kara. Yeah. Overgirl's trying to take Kara's heart in order to save her own life, but she taunts Kara about being cut off from people, if you remember the season three arc, and she says, why do you care if I take your heart? You're not using it. And Kara says, at least I have one, which is a very similar retort to what Lena said. This might be why Kara and Lena are friends. <laughs> Uh, But Lillian, to sort of further taunt Lena for, like, having emotions, talks about how she was always prone to migraines. Which was a nice little tidbit because in cultures or family situations where talking about emotion is discouraged, mental health symptoms will frequently show up as physical symptoms instead. Mm -hmm. So muscle aches, headaches, so... The fact that Lena apparently had migraines, which are pretty darn bad headaches, is a sign of exactly how much she has been repressing things for Mm. her entire life. She gets migraines because of all the little boxes that are in her head. Exactly. They start rattling too loudly. (laughs) And in discussing the theme of the episode of handling emotions, Lillian obviously tries to encourage in her own way Lena to suppress her emotions, which is quite the contrast with Marin's attempt at manipulating Jean into letting go and expressing his emotions in how he said you were already angry, just pushing it down. Which then had a much more positive result. (laughs) Yes. But this was not the only manipulation that Lillian tried to employ. She also tried to convince Lena that her friends would hate her. Which plays on one of Lena's very real fears Mm. about not being good enough for people. But it's important that this comes up in kind of the first third of the episode before Lena starts collaborating with the people who she actually trusts. <laughs> but we see in the very beginning of the episode when the DEO finds her, Lena's actually ready to tell Alex a kind of more of the truth about what happened and isn't necessarily afraid to do it. But unfortunately, Alex cuts her off. Yeah. But now that Lena maybe has more time to share this information because Alex approaches her later to work together and try to track down Lex, Lillian's planted this idea in her 
her head that she shouldn't be honest. Mm. And that then affects Lena's behavior throughout the rest of the episode. Yeah. And you kind of see it bubble up to the surface in her argument with Supergirl. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that Lillian says this to Lena in this episode because she says something very similar to Kara in season two concerning Kara's identity as Supergirl in relation to Lena and keeping that secret. She says, eventually she'll find out on her own, find out that you've been lying to her all this time. And when she does, she'll hate you for it, which does affect Kara, if not for any tangible result for Lillian, other than just making her upset. But it works because she has like abandonment issues. And Lena also has issues concerning feeling alone and not connecting with other people. And so she lucked out that (laughs) she found someone with that slightly similar psychology. And it's funny because in season two, Lillian also tries this tactic with Alex. And we see in this season, she has such disdain for the fact that Lena has now apparently befriended both Danvers sisters. Mm -hmm. But I also found it funny that as we were talking about this, that for all that Lillian thinks she's so clever, she has a bit of kind of a lack of creativity in her Mm -hmm. strategies for trying to control people and get them to do what she wants. Because she uses this very similar kind of manipulative tactic with Alex early in season two to try to get her to either turn on Supergirl or maybe betray the DEO in some way and it completely backfires. (laughs) Yeah. And not only does Alex beat up all of Lillian's flunkies earlier in the season, she then blows up her entire lab. So (laughs) I wonder how much stronger Lillian's vendetta against the Danvers family is, knowing that she has reasons to be concerned about both of them. Yeah. They should come with a warning to (laughs) supervillains. Yes. But Lillian's tactics clearly work on Lena because, like you said, when she sees Alex afterwards, she's really primed to be judged. She says, have you changed your mind about me? And Alex is like, no, of course not. I came to ask for your help. Which is the most Alex thing ever. Like, no, why would I? You're my friend. (laughs) Right. And this heavily comes into play with the Harnell serum discussion she has with Supergirl because she misreads why Supergirl reacts the way she does to the Harnell serum as her thinking that Lena's intentions are bad and Supergirl thinking that she's like a bad person. And then when Supergirl clarifies to Lena, Lena's really shocked. Yes, her facial expression was great. (laughs) Yes, which is another reason that Lillian should be afraid of the Danvers sisters because this encouragement (laughs) from both of them helps her toward the end of the episode in being confident and having the upper hand with Lillian. Yes, while Supergirl and Alex help Lena kind of investigate what's going on, Lena finds the perfect piece of leverage to kind of get one up on her mother for being a jerk. (laughs) So she rubs it in Lillian's face that Lex might be her favorite, but she is not Lex's favorite person because he was planning to come to kill her. And Lena made sure to rub it in by wearing lipstick that was the same color as the ink Mm. on Lex's hit list mark, which I truly appreciated as a extra level detail. (laughs) She has the dramatic flair to be a Luther, but not the villainous intentions. And then in terms of people who are dealing with trauma and handling emotions in this episode, we also have Kara, of course, who is always dealing with both of those things. Her arc this season has been interesting in terms of it not relying too heavily on like interpersonal stuff, at least until the middle of the season with Alex. But the basis of the season is in Kara's sense of responsibility in protecting others 
at the beginning of the season, we saw her come to the realization that things were not as nice in America regarding aliens as she had thought. She has to come to terms with the fact that there are people who hate aliens. And she expresses frustration and feeling overwhelmed to Alex. And Alex, funnily, is like, you'll figure it out. <laughs> you'll solve xenophobia in America. Alex's faith in people is so implicit. <laughs> Yes, that she grossly oversimplifies complex problems. <laughs> like when she told Lena to just science harder and things would be fine. <laughs> yes, Lena did science harder. And so maybe Kara truly will solve xenophobia <laughs> in America. I mean, I'd like her to. <laughs> right. Could she come here? That would be great. <laughs> Perfect. And in this episode specifically, related to her sense of responsibility, she really blames herself for letting Lex escape. She says, Cal left me here to protect Earth, and I let his arch nemesis slip through my fingers. Everything that Lex does now is because I failed. Which is interesting in terms of Kara feeling like she let down Cal, because we know at the root of her sense of responsibility is that moment where Alora told her to take care of Cal and to go to Earth and be extraordinary. And then because she was sucked into the Phantom Zone, she never made it to Earth and Cal grew up without her and she wasn't able to impart knowledge about Krypton and their culture to him. And then there's that added context of her when she was a teenager and how she felt about, you know, Superman. Back in Midvale, we had flashbacks to Kara in high school and her expressing that she really wanted to go be with Clark and be super and like leave everything behind. Well, and I also liked that they used the phrase arch nemesis again in this episode because that's how teenage Kara described them as well. Yeah. And so it was a nice little kind of tie into the fact that she's been aware of this rivalry for much of her life on Earth, apparently, and has a sense of like how serious it is. Yeah. And that's just interesting because Kara, as like a kid, wanted to go and be a superhero with Clark and be involved in his life of having like an arch nemesis. She even talked about in season two how she thought that having an arch nemesis would be cool, like having a pen pal. But now that she's here doing what she would have expected to do when she was a kid, she's failing. And it's hard and it's scary, which are the two emotions she expresses mm. about dealing with Livewire back in season two. Huh. She's like, this isn't as fun as I thought it would be when I was like 15. Yeah. And then in terms of events that tie back to Kara's sort of initial trauma in losing her planet and then being trapped in the pod, at the end of the episode, she is prevented from helping people as the Red Daughter attack is falling upon the White House because she is trapped in a Lexo suit. And it's funny because we talked earlier this season about how she must have felt very claustrophobic in her sort of space anti-kryptonite suit. Yes. Speaking of trauma. <laughs> yes. And now that feeling of claustrophobia plus the kryptonite plus watching people get hurt and then not being able to help them must have been a very, well, traumatic moment. Yeah. We have Akara who's deeply scarred by the fact that she forcibly watched her first home explode. Mm -hmm. And now here she is as an adult watching her second home metaphorically go up in flames. Ooh. Poor Kara. Poor Kara. But then it's interesting because after this, she goes back to her apartment and sits in a very comfortable looking sweater that's like kind of loose on the sleeves. I appreciate that it's blue and fluffy and makes her look like Stitch. <laughs> but that's interesting because she also reacted the same way after being trapped in the anti-kryptonite suit for a long time. Mm -hmm. She had this really big comfortable looking sweater on that was loosely fitting. So Kara likes to indulge in sort of soft materials when she's feeling low, which is something that Kazani and Kara seem to share, at least the enjoyment 
moments of it. Yeah. She had the red blanket on her shoulders when she was reading Kara's journal. Which had the extra fun of sort of symbolically looking like a cape. (laughs) Yes. She was trying on her cape. Maybe there's hope. And in terms of Kara having her storyline of emotional reactions and handling emotions, she recognizes in herself that the Haranel situation elicits an emotional response in a big way. She explains what we discussed, which is that she fears that if she's weak or weakened, that people will die. You know, she feels the weight of the world in her shoulders. And particularly right now, she feels it because Superman's gone and Lex is free. And if her enemies are strengthened and she is weakened at all, she could lose. And she can't lose because the consequences are pretty dire. So this ties back into the kryptonite discussion that they had last year in terms of Lena secretly making kryptonite and then not revealing that she has the ability to make it until later on. And Carr wanted to be able to control that substance. And Lena sort of accused her of having a god complex, which is interesting because this time around we have Kara have sort of her shot at negating that idea. She says it's not an ego thing, which like if you think about a God complex, there are a couple elements in there where it's like you think you have control, which is something the car does think. Mm. But then the part that makes it a God complex is that like your ego is the most important aspect of it. Mm -hmm. She also specifies that it's not an allegiance thing. Like it's not about Lena being a Luther and she doesn't think that she's a bad person. And this sort of confession was a nice setup for the end of the episode when Lena and Alex get together and support Support of Supergirl. So Supergirl talks about how it's not that she doesn't believe in Lena and believe that she's a good person. And then Lena and Alex in turn are in Supergirl's corner in terms of her not being capable of killing a dozen people in the White House. However, Carr's reasons for being upset about this weren't purely emotional. Yeah, she has some justifiable reasons to have objections to the things that Lena is doing, and that's the part Lena still won't acknowledge. And while there are psychological reasons that Lena has a hard time admitting mistakes, which we've talked about before, it's a little frustrating that the narrative keeps framing it in a way that doesn't acknowledge that. Yeah. Like, that Kara does have valid reasons that aren't really being heard. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see some of the valid reasons in this episode. The consequences of Lena's creations. Lena and Supergirl have had this somewhat longstanding disagreement concerning how Lena uses her inventions and like the moderation of it specifically. In this episode, we saw the X-ray scatter field that Lena invented. And when Kara was upset about it back in season three, after she like looked at it and that it hurt her eyes, Lena says that she doesn't think about Kara when she makes these sort of anti-Kryptonian inventions. And that's sort of a problem because now we have Eve having taken the X-ray scatter field and using it against Supergirl. And then after Eve uses the X-ray scatter field to trick Kara into coming up to the car, the Lexo suit shoots out at Kara and traps her. And that is the Lexo suit that Lena upgraded earlier this season. Yeah. So those two things together lead to Kara being unable to prevent all of the extremely bad things that happen at the end of the episode. And they are somewhat indirectly, but still kind of directly, the fault of decisions that Lena made. And she won't acknowledge this fact. Yes. She specifically made the Lexo suit because she had that conversation with Mercy in order to make it a more even playing field, apparently, with aliens. And she developed the Harnell serum in order to give people, humans, powers in order to apparently (laughs) create a more even playing field with aliens. Well, her original intention was to make society safer. (laughs) Yes. 
And the way that she thought she would like moderate that is that she herself would choose who gets the serum and who gets powers and make sure that they have good intentions. And then, of course, we have Lex who got it anyway. So all of these elements have come together and specifically affected Kara's life. Lena's Harnell serum even cured Cosney and Kara, and she's now alive and kicking and ruining Supergirl's life. Yeah, on a scale of one to decisions that absolutely (laughs) had negative repercussions that maybe could have been avoided if Lena talked about things with more people, this is pretty bad. Yeah, so Lena, her biggest like long-running issue is the fact that she doesn't have any oversight and she doesn't want any. So there's very little input in what she creates. And then, of course, we had Eve. Who who was her sounding board and was a plant for evil. So... Yes. <laughs> this is why we have committees for things. And it, it's all because of her trust issues, but it's just... Yeah, her lack of progress on that front has grown problematic. Hmm. So we had all these elements brought up, like the consequences for the things that she creates. But then Kara was made to be narratively placed in the position of like the wrong one, the one who needed to apologize for basically criticizing Lena, but her criticisms were valid and not entirely based in emotion, which I know the emotional element ties into the theme of the episode, but it's kind of disappointing because the Haranel storyline has been much longer running and, and we've been waiting for some of these elements to be revealed. Yeah. That said, it's not over yet. So there's a chance that we'll get to see a little more nuance and maybe room for Kara's point of view and her justifiable anger. I have hope, but I also am skeptical because this show has an interesting relationship with Kara's anger, which you would think because it was one of the things that was really praised about season one, how Kara was a Supergirl, who's like a girly character, was allowed to display that kind of rage. But since then, it's been kind of up and down. Obviously, last season with Lena and the Kryptonite, Kara was also put in the same position of it being like she overreacted to what Lena did and that she messed up for being angry. I mean, even back in season two, with some of my biggest gripes about the Monel and Kara relationship or surrounding Kara's anger, maybe specifically about Monel hiding the fact that he was the Prince of Daxum, but she had legitimate reasons to dislike that fact, sort of pro-social criticisms, and then they turned it into being sort of a more you should forgive him even though he lied kind of romantic conflict. And then even back in season one, it was interesting because I really enjoyed the falling episode in which Kara was infected with red kryptonite. However, this happened after a few storylines were set up. Kat had for quite some time been treating Kara pretty terribly because she broke up with Adam, her son, and then Adam subsequently moved back home. Kat hired Siobhan, who was terrible to Kara as well. And then she had these sort of unexpressed and unprocessed feelings about Alex and how she killed Kara's Aunt Astra. And then the red kryptonite happens and she lashes out at everyone because of it, like against her will. And then after that, she's sort of put in this position of having to be sorry because she hurt a lot of people in ways that she would not have had she not been influenced in that way. And it's interesting because Kat in that episode says, you don't get to be a real person. You're a superhero. You get to represent all the goodness in the world. And that's kind of how I feel about the way the show deals with Kari's anger and kind of she ends up having to be the bigger person a lot. And it's like as if she's wrong if she isn't the bigger person. Yeah, the only times where she maybe gets the room to feel justified in those more negative emotions is in her dynamic with Alex sometimes. Yes, they're pretty good with that. Alex in the Red Kryptonite episode was the only one who was like, yeah, we do have to talk about this. Although the narrative, again, didn't really address it, at least that specifically. 
So it's just disappointing for this pattern of storylines where you're expecting there to be a, a bit of righteous anger and then for the other person to maybe learn how to better relate to Supergirl or in Lena's case, maybe learn something morally and then for it to just turn into a lesson about like being nicer <laughs> and being less angry and more forgiving each of the times. So, I mean, there are, there are definitely more elements of this specific storyline with Lena that have to be revealed, specifically that Lena experimented on Adam and then Adam died. And then she's also keeping the secret of the fact that she wanted to cure Lex with the Haranel and then he ended up getting powers because she sort of led him into her home and opened up emotionally to him. Although that doesn't seem like something that Supergirl or Alex or anyone would criticize her for. So, But we will see where that storyline leads. It's not over. But Alex's role in this whole scenario was interesting because she did not side with Kara. No, and that was actually kind of fun in a <laughs> weird and sad way. So we had what might have felt a little bit at first glance like a surprise from Alex during this Harnell exchange. Like first, she kind of kept quiet, like she was watching a ping pong match <laughs> and she wasn't sure who was going to win because she kept glancing back and forth really concerned and looking slightly tense, like she might have to break up a fight. Hmm. But she ultimately finally does have an opinion. And for the first time in possibly the whole series, <laughs> she doesn't automatically come down on Kara's side. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit of a shock to Kara. It is. And so the reason Alex does this is like very classically Alex. <laughs> yeah. She sticks up for Lena because Lena's more in her circle of people she's willing to protect than Supergirl is at this point. Mm -hmm. And as Alex said earlier this season, when she sees someone in need of defending, that's what she does, whether they need her to or not. <laughs> and so at the point at which she feels like Supergirl is overlooking some of the positive things that have come out of Lena's experiments with the Harunel that specifically were also helpful or positive for Supergirl, she voices that. And it was funny because you pointed this out and it was like a revelation. The positive things are directly positive for Alex's close group of friends. Yes, including saving all the survivors from Argo, even though Alex doesn't realize that that's personally relevant to her anymore hmm. because it's important to Kara. Yeah. But it was a very Alex thing to do. And obviously, the situation would normally be reversed because Kara is number one on the fam pyramid at all times. <laughs> and that's what we saw last season when we had the three of them kind of in an uneasy entente with each other. You had Alex stabbing Lena with a stick. But in some ways, this is actually a positive kind of growth for the working relationship between the Danvers sisters. Because they have needed a little bit of space from each other to make their own decisions and voice their opinions more freely when they disagree. This has come up in previous seasons, specifically in season two, where we saw Alex holding back her own opinion on Lena and the situation with her just out of respect for Kara's judgment. And we also see it in the way Alex got so angry at Kara for not respecting Alex's judgment in return regarding Jeremiah. Mm. So the scene was also nice because we get 
a sense of how much of Alex's impulse to step in versus hold back those feelings is out of like a genuine belief in what Kara's saying versus you're my sister, so I'm going to fight everyone on your behalf. Although it is interesting because this Alex doesn't have the sort of exposure to an alien living her life and being vulnerable that she did and therefore her opinions about aliens have changed. She's not as like alien leaning in her point of view. And we saw earlier this season that she was against Lena's plan of making humans have powers because she thought that technology was enough to level the playing field, which like Alex would. Alex being Alex. Yes. <laughs> Alex, who in this episode was like, man, I wish I had grenades. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be interesting to see an Alex who has the same context and understanding of aliens, but then also is not necessarily always going to fall on Kara's side, which is obviously a hard situation to make happen because forgetting parts of Kara's history is how we got into this situation to begin with. Yeah, but it'll be interesting once they resolve the memory thing to see how Alex and Kara balance that. Yeah, I hadn't considered that, that there might be some changes in their dynamic in other ways. Mm. Well, and then the other thing where I saw this as almost like a positive growth moment was that while it does play on Kara's deep-seated fear of being like alone in the world, it also forces her to kind of articulate her positions on things in a way that she maybe didn't have to before mm -hmm. and think more carefully about how she's going to persuade people to do things instead of just assuming immediately that oh, I need to do this thing. Alex will get the DEO to help me do this thing or Jean and Alex will get them to help me do this thing. It's funny because then her tactic is something that we've seen with her before. Kara opens up and makes herself vulnerable in order to make them understand her better and relate to her more. And she's done that in the past. Which I appreciate that she continues to do that because we got the reveal in season one from General Lane that revealing your weaknesses in front of maybe an opponent or an enemy is a very Kryptonian thing to do and like a sign of respect almost. Yeah. And back in season one, we see her do it with Kat when Kat is angry with her for not having been around. This was when Kara lost her powers temporarily. So Kat is sort of laying on her for not being there and how people need her to be around and rely upon her. And Kara just kind of diverts it and is like, you inspired me. <laughs> and they had you to make them feel better. Yes. <laughs> so she connected by opening up emotionally, which is a very Kara thing to do. Speaking of opening up emotionally, I like that you phrased it that way because there were some ways that the interaction between Alex and Kara as Supergirl in this episode felt like a continuation of the uh, we need to get better about talking about our issues <laughs> that has been kind of left lingering since late in season one and that also came to a head in the second episode of season two where they got into the argument about Kara wanting to leave and go be a hero with Superman. <laughs> and there's a moment when Kara is actually giving that kind of emotional disclosure to Lena where she turns her gaze to Alex and she says it about how she's felt like she's bearing all this weight on her own since Superman left <laughs> and it's She's not just thinking about Clark. <laughs> <laughs> sad. It is sad, but it was great. 
because that episode of season two also delved into how much of Kara superheroing is about Clark and how much of Kara being the hero she is is about her and Alex being there as a support system for each other. Hmm. And in that episode, the way that they kind of come to the realization that they do need each other's support and to work together was they fought a Metallo. <laughs> and then what busts right through the wall at the convenient <laughs> moment in this episode, but another Metallo. Yeah. And then they have to work together again. Exactly. Although it is funny that you mentioned that episode because Kara says to Alex that, you know, she thought that Alex would be better off if she left and went with Clark. Mm -hmm. And in this season, we have Kara trying to come to terms with the fact that Alex doesn't remember Kara's super side because she thinks that ultimately it would be better for Alex. Yeah. There's been a nice circling around to long-standing issues between the two of them mm -hmm. this season. And I am enjoying it. The other thing that was kind of funny, though, speaking of the mind wipe and going back to what we talked about with Jean and questions of identity and memory and how those things all fit together, we are getting a much clearer sense of which things about Alex are just inherently Alex. Like mm -hmm. when the Metallo comes in, she immediately jumps up to defend Kara and Lena because she recognizes that Supergirl actually is vulnerable, <laughs> at least in this moment, because the Metallo heart has kryptonite in it. And she's like, I will handle this, which she would have done anyway. She just might have been marginally more intense about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's sort of the issue is that Alex, when she remembers everything about Kara, does the same things for the most part, but then is more intense about them. <laughs> And it can get in the way of things. <laughs> yes. And so similarly, it was really interesting to see Alex's reaction to Bitsy pulling the knife in this episode because it was very similar to the way she reacted when the DEO went with Supergirl to confront Julia hmm. when they were looking for the world killers in season three. And you see Alex really kind of tense and edgy and immediately draw her weapon. Whereas Kara is the one who's like, no, no, it's okay. We just need to connect as people. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Although I do wonder if Alex had had all her memories when they went to confront Bitsy, if she would have had that same reaction or at least in the same way. Hmm. Interesting. Because it could go either way. Yeah. With Julia, we saw her eventually have an empathetic technique for trying to reach out to her. So Yes, but she also escalated that situation and made it bad because she was so worried about Kara getting hurt again mm. that she interpreted a non-threatening behavior as a threat. Yeah, sort of speaking of that scene, the way that they approach Julia versus Bitsy is like such a stark <laughs> contrast because <Yes. laughs> the full force of the DEO like barged into poor Julia's house. She's listening to music. And then we have Lena, Kara, and Alex like standing at the door and like Kara's got this giant smile on her face. How did I describe them as like a weird trick-or-treating sorority group? <laughs> Something like yes. that. <laughs> and then to kind of close out the loop on the shift in the dynamic between Alex and Supergirl, Kara gives Alex the Super Signal Watch, mm -hmm. which I liked for a number of reasons. Number one, poor Kara, because the last time she was interacting with that watch was when she found it laying next to James' 
dying on the floor. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's yet another reminder of the danger that people are put in. Yep. <laughs> and it's extra fitting in the sense that I've talked about how this season's kind of used James and Alex as foils to each other a little bit and how they've always had the potential to do this. And one of the things that was always very striking, like in season three, when you had Kara and James talking about their respective relationships with Clark, James is very quick to correct Kara and differentiate the fact that he understands that Clark and Superman are different. Hmm. And Alex has never made that distinction. Yeah. James, although he personally knows Clark, definitely has that element of like he's a superhero in him, especially when he talks about how people can see supers as miracles. Yeah. Well, but also in terms of like things about identity, he recognizes that there are differences between Clark being Clark and Clark being Superman Mm -hmm. when he's in that role. And Alex has never made that mental separation. Yeah. Just one of the few characters. Yeah. And most of the time that's okay. But as we've seen come to a head in this season, sometimes that is to her and Kara's detriment. So I thought it was kind of fitting that now we have Alex taking on this like Supergirl's best pal (laughs) role by accepting the watch and kind of fulfilling that loop of James initially having it as a way to contact Clark and then reconfiguring it for Kara. Mm. And now it's gone from James to Alex. Nice. So I liked that. Passing of the watch. (laughs) Yes. And it felt extra fitting that it went from being a symbol of these like male characters and their relationship to female characters and their relationship Mm -hmm. because that was kind of the heart of this episode in some ways. Yeah, we had um... the girl squad. (laughs) Yes. At the end of the episode, Alex calls Supergirl with the super watch and car walks in. She's like, are you going to arrest me? Which is a little bit funny because if Alex was intending to arrest her, there would have been a lot more guns involved. (laughs) Knowing Alex, yes. (laughs) But Alex and Lena rally behind Kara at the end of the episode, forming that girl squad. And we will see them unite in the coming episodes as well. And it's funny because Kara's concern that they think she's guilty kind of mirrors Lena's reaction to Alex earlier in the episode. Mm. But we've had Alex and Lena both working with Supergirl throughout this whole episode. And they actually see her in the face of dealing with Bitsy Mm. still being willing to take the time and acknowledge Bitsy's feelings and the fact that maybe Eve did do like a good thing or at some points was a kind or caring person. And she uses her compassion to kind of bridge the gap and get the information that they need without escalating the situation into a whole crisis. Mm -hmm. So then it makes sense. They're like, yeah, she did not just kill a whole bunch of people and set the White House on fire. Yeah. Especially since they both know that Lex is doing all kinds of schemes. Yeah. But I always appreciate when the show highlights that people can do bad and good things. All sorts of qualities can exist in one person, which is something that, you know, would be helpful for Lena and her mentality to learn in terms of growth and like accepting that she can have done a single bad thing without being a bad person. And that conversely, people who mostly do really terrible things can also have done kind things in their lives. Yeah, and that it doesn't devalue the good things that someone might have done, but it also doesn't negate the bad things they might have done. Yep. It's just a question of finding the appropriate way to deal with it and move on. Mm. And speaking of characters who have both positive and negative qualities in them, we have Colonel Haley in this episode showing some positive traits or coming around on Supergirl a little bit. Yeah, that was a 
a surprise moment of potentially being an ally, yeah. which you seem to think was related to the fact that Kara might have bribed her with food. Well, yeah. <laughs> Kara brought a big thing of donuts and Haley took the entire thing and walked away with them at the end of the scene. So that was funny. But it also seems like Haley attempted the same kind of thing earlier in the season after she had sort of reprimanded Alex and Supergirl. In the Thanksgiving episode, she mentioned that she had sweet potato pie for them to eat as what looks like possibly a peace offering or an attempt to smooth things over a little bit. So it's funny that they share this quality. Humans and aliens, they both like food. <laughs> That's the real uniting force. But when Supergirl comes to her to offer her help in finding Lex, Haley, rather than saying that he's like not in their purview because he's not an alien, actually frees up Alex to work with Supergirl, even though Alex had offered to try to do both her initial assignment and work with Supergirl at the same time. Haley just says that she'll do it herself and then Alex can go with Supergirl. And then at the end of the episode, she agrees with Alex that Supergirl wouldn't attack the White House. And uh, it's good that at least some people believe that Kara is not guilty because um, President Baker sure seems to. And in hindsight, it probably doesn't help that Kara offered to start a war with him, <laughs> if need <Offered>. be. Uh, <laughs> if you'd like. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say threatened, because she didn't, but she certainly didn't take it off the table. Yeah. It is a nice loop that we are now in the situation that they sort of foreshadowed there. Yeah, it's like they knew they were going to do it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's going too far. What? <laughs> this season was planned. It's inconceivable. Ha. Huh. Yeah, so um, the president who, to go back to the kind of season-long theme of hope versus fear, <laughs> is certainly acting out of his own fears by um, declaring Supergirl public enemy number one, which is a little scary. For Kara. Yeah. And uh, also declaring martial law for what is the second time in all of U.S. history mm. at a national level, which is interesting in the sense that Haley said something a couple episodes ago about feeling like they were on the verge of a civil war. Because the only time that a president has ever declared martial law was during the Civil War. Mm. So that might not end well for many of the alien characters living in National City and throughout the United States. Nope. Especially coming on the heels of this repeal of the Alien Amnesty Act, which gave some citizenship-like rights two aliens in the United States. Mm. So a character that may be affected by this, according to the promo for next week, is Brady. It looks like Agent Liberty is sort of attacking him inside the DEO, like detaining him for some reason. And there are a couple of possible reasons, one of which is his relationship with Supergirl, which we saw just in this past episode, that he has sort of a hero worship type reaction to her being around. When she popped up in the DEO, he was pretty happy to see her. And obviously, he was very very grateful when Supergirl gave him his Legion ring back. And it's funny because she says, keep it close. You never know when you might need it, which may be foreshadowing for this next week. Perhaps. And so a couple other possible reasons they might be coming after Brainy. He was front and center at the pictures of the Alien March several weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So perhaps somebody figures out his 
name he's using at the DEO and is targeting him because they suspect he's an alien Mm. because of that. Or perhaps because I have been wondering about this since the very beginning of the season, maybe through Lex and Eve, the Children of Liberty get their hands on all of the people who have purchased image inducers and start coming after them. So there are multiple possibilities, none of them all that great for Brainy, Mm. but they should make for compelling storytelling. (laughs) Yes. And speaking of compelling storylines, of course, we have the girl squad, as we have named it. Um, Alex, Lena, and Kara are going to work together in the next episode. Yeah, and that was a fantastic closing beat for the episode, specifically because it was a moment of reassurance that Kara desperately needed after realizing that Jean wasn't available and she didn't feel like she had anyone else that she could go to about feeling very targeted and trapped by this situation. Yeah. And the thing that made it so great was that it circled back around to something Kara said at the very start of season one, which is that she needs Alex's faith in her Hmm. to be Supergirl. And Alex just gave that back to her, even without remembering that she is Supergirl. That was a great way to end the episode. Yes. Lots of intensity happening in the storyline right now, but we still have the Danvers sisters in their various forms to comfort us. (laughs) It's true. And we'll get to see them kick some butt, hopefully, in the next couple episodes. So stay tuned for a wild ride for this back third of the season. Mm. Thanks for listening.